I'm going to use the podium and not the, not the stadium. It is my joy and honor to be introducing our guest speaker this morning, Maggie England. Maggie and her husband, Greg, have been attending West Hills for over 35 years. That precedes most millennials' existence. <laughs> She raised her two kids, John and Kate, here. She has served in numerous leadership positions, including council and leadership teams, Pacific Northwest Conference Executive Board, and Cascades Camp Board. Maggie is a self-declared lifelong learner and, might I say, lifelong teacher, and has preached since the late 1980s. She is a retired elementary school teacher and extraordinary artist in residence in the Portland area and currently is enjoying being a grandmother for the first time. I had a chance to hear uh, Maggie during her West Hills talks on Junia and other overlooked women in the Bible. I was gifted with her rigorous, important study of Junia, which reminds us that when buried voices of women are lifted up, we all are. We thank you for your voice, for your wisdom and for your labor to continue offering more room at the table. At this time, I'd love to invite up Maggie um, as we pray for our time this morning. Lord God, you are good, you are faithful, you are sure. We thank you for this community for the many diverse stories, lives, and passions. Would you speak in and through Maggie? Would you bring your word in her very own words? Would we attend to listen to your spirit this morning? Would, we, would our minds and our hearts ever expand for more people, for more stories, and therefore more of you? In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. This is exciting to be with you this morning. Uh, I've been on this uh, little journey recently, and it all began last fall when two young women I know independently reached out to me asking about women in leadership in the church within the same week. And it kind of felt like God was up to something and that I needed to pay attention. Both of them were increasingly dismayed by what they were being taught in their churches regarding the complementarian view, which holds that women are not allowed to teach or be pastors or hold positions of leadership, that they are to submit to their husbands and in its extreme forms, to remain silent in church. They were wondering if this was, in fact, a valid interpretation of scripture. And then both their mothers told them, go talk to Maggie. <laughs> These friends of mine <laughs> knew I'd been nerding out on this issue for years, and for some reason thought I might just have something to say about this. And yes, yes I do. <laughs> then I was given the opportunity to 
speak uh, at the West Hills Talks, and since this topic of women in ministry was fresh in my mind, I spoke about Junia and other forgotten women of the Bible. And then I was asked if I would give a follow-up sermon uh, on lessons from Junia while our pastors were away. So here we are. But my guess is, you might be wondering, why are we still talking about women in ministry? Good question. Maybe you've been thinking, as I naively was, that we were long past denying equality for women in the church, especially here at West Hills, because, you know, after all, our denomination has been ordaining women since 1976, and West Hills wrestled with this in 1990 and affirmed the egalitarian view that women could hold any position of leadership, including pastor. And now we've not only hired a female co-pastor, senior co-pastor, but have hired several female staff as well. So, yeah, I kind of thought we were done with this. But unfortunately, it seems there is a current doubling down of complementarianism, as evidenced by the recent controversy with John MacArthur and Beth Moore. And in case you didn't catch that last fall, Beth Moore, who is a nationally known women's speaker and Bible study author, spoke at the Southern Baptist Truth Matters conference and linked complementarian theology with the historical abuse of women in the church. Ouch. And later, at, that, at an all-male panel at the same conference, megachurch pastor John MacArthur was asked what he thought of Beth Moore, and MacArthur snickered and simply said, go home. The audience laughed, and the panel went on to belittle a well-known African-American theologian. Tragically, patriarchy and racism are two sides of the same ugly coin. And both of these evils have been denigrating the gospel in America and around the world for centuries. I am deeply grateful for these two young women and for asking the question again and seeking scripture for themselves and allowing me to journey with them. And since last fall, we have been meeting regularly with a growing group of women around Portland who have also been questioning this complementarian view of women as subordinate that they've been hearing in their churches. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, it seems we are not done talking about this. And clearly the next generation of women, our own daughters and granddaughters, are in need of hearing that they are equally loved by God, equally free to follow their calling and exercise their God-given gifts, as many, many women in the Bible did. So today, with apologies to those of you who attended my recent talk on Junia, I want to briefly recap the research on Junia and then move on to what are the lessons we can learn from Junia. So how many of you have ever heard of Junia? Raise your hand before I start talking about it. 
Okay, few. Who grew up thinking that apostles of the early church were only men? Oh, some, a few of you. Okay, good. Well, in, for those who didn't know, in fact, Junia was an apostle and she was a woman. But just let that sink in for a moment. Junia was an apostle and she was a woman. And so if you are able, open a Bible to Romans 16, 7. Which says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Now, look carefully. Does anyone have different names in your version? Edith, what do you have? Ah, anybody have Junius in any of theirs? Okay. All righty. So Junia is a female name, but in some older Bibles or different translations, when you look up this passage, you will likely see the name Junius, a male name. Junia is the apostle we've never heard of or taken much notice of because in our lifetime, up until recently, her name was transcribed and translated as Junius with an S added to indicate a male name. So how did this happen? Glad you asked. Here is a brief but spectacular history based on Scott McKnight's book, Junia is Not Alone. So in all recent translations of scripture, Junia was a woman. The early Greek church writers, like Erasmus and John Chrysostom, considered Junia as an outstanding woman apostle in their commentaries. But then, during the Middle Ages, translators and commentators began the transformation of Junia to Junius. And the logic went like this. The person in Romans 16, 7 is clearly an apostle, and apostles can't possibly be women, so Junia cannot have been a woman. She had to be a man. And if Junia was a man, then the feminine name in scripture obviously needs to be corrected. And an S was added to create a male name. There's just one problem with that. The male name, Junius, doesn't exist in the ancient world, while Junia was a common female name. So this resistance to Junia as being a woman continued on right up until 1927 when the official Greek New Testament changed Junia to Junius and Junia became a footnote. Then in 1979, the footnote was dropped altogether in the official Greek and the transformation was completed. So why care about the official Greek New Testament? The official Greek is the document used by all seminaries, 
pastors, and theologians for study and translation. So in our modern lifetime, from 1927 to the 1990s, Junia became non-existent. But fortunately, Junia began her resurrection in the late 1990s due to the discovery of those earlier and more reliable texts that only showed Junia, and then the recent scholarly attention to those early, like those early church fathers like Chrysostom who believed Junia to be a female. So let me say it again. Junia was a woman and an apostle in the early church. McKnight summarizes, there was no evidence in ancient manuscripts that anyone understood Junia as a male, no evidence in translations she was a male, and there was no ancient evidence that Junius was a man's name. But still, the church got into a rut and wrote it out until some courageous folks said, oh yes, Junia was a woman, and she was an apostle, and we've been wrong, and we're going to do something about it. So since 1998, the official Greek now only has Junia. But unfortunately, several modern English translations, even those printed since 2000, continue to either use Junius or water down Junia's role as just being well-known to the apostles, not an actual apostle herself. So now, you might wonder, as I did, did this happen to other women in the Bible? The answer is yes. So who's heard of Yodia, Syntyche, Phoebe, Nympha, or even Priscilla? Mm -hmm. Paul names these women and their ministries throughout his letters without qualification. He addresses them as co-workers, teachers, pastors of their house churches, like Nympha, deacons, co-evangelists, apostles, and co-leaders in ministry alongside him and other men in the advancement of the gospel. He makes it clear that it was not unusual for women to be in ministry, but in fact normal. Yet despite this, these very women were victims of having their names changed to men because of the same logic that women couldn't possibly be in positions of leadership, as noted by Paul. This travesty of translation might bring up a few other questions for you, such as the question of the slippery slope. If Junia had been translated incorrectly, along with other females, how can we trust our Bible at all? What about inerrancy? What about you can't change God's word? Isn't this just a slippery slope? In a word, no. McKnight addresses this and notes that we've actually got about 98% of the words correct. However, the real issue is not about adding an S here or there to women's names, although that's horrifying. The real issue is the patriarchal bias used to translate and interpret passages about women over the centuries. It's about correcting inferior translations that have resulted in flawed interpretations that devalue women and are complicit in their subordination 
and even in their abuse around the world and within the church, as Beth Moore was contending. John Phelan, former president of North Park Seminary and part of the Covenant, in his helpful book, All God's People, argues that every translation is, in fact, an interpretation. It really can't be avoided. Translations are not infallible, however. And yes, of course you shouldn't change God's word, but clearly men have been doing just that, especially when it comes to verses about women. We should not be afraid of correcting errors and setting the record straight when the evidence calls for it. So why this particular resistance to accept Junia as a woman? Jim Ryer, in his essay on Paul and women in the book, Women and Men, One in Christ, gives this response. If Junia is a woman apostle, and this is most certainly the case, then the argument that women cannot be church leaders and that they should not teach completely collapses. So no wonder the resistance to Junia has been so fierce for so long. It just might mean men will need to share in leadership. Churches might consent to women as Sunday school teachers or deacons, but apostles? It's a game changer and requires us to question our assumptions and our residual or implicit bias. So now you know. What can we learn from St. Junia? Contrary to what we may have been taught in the past, women really were apostles. But what difference does that make? What are the lessons we can glean from Junia? So, lesson number one. Biblical equality and women in ministry at all levels was normative in the early church. But Maggie, I can hear you asking, isn't this just about the church caving in to secular culture? In a word, no. When I say biblical equality was normative, I am not saying it wasn't countercultural or radical. It most definitely was. John Phelan argues that the original biblical position of equality in ministry for women was in fact the norm for the early church and was radically countercultural to Greco-Roman secular norms of women as subservient. This newfound freedom in Christ would not only have been viewed as going against common culture and sensibilities, but would have been hard to sustain. Given how such a powerful and previously unheard of equality resulted in women teaching, preaching, and prophesying right along with men. If Junia was an apostle, if Nympha was a house church leader, if Phoebe was a deacon, if Priscilla was a teacher, then I believe this evidence indicates that Paul, in fact, advocated and affirmed women in their equality in spite of the prevailing culture. And you know, it wasn't just Paul. Think about all the ways Jesus elevated and affirmed women. 
Remember how astonished the disciples were when they found Jesus talking alone with the Samaritan woman at the well? Remember how Jesus told Martha that Mary was choosing the right thing to sit and learn at his feet, a place normally reserved for men, instead of helping in the kitchen and staying in her lane according to her prescribed gender role? The example Jesus set would help explain why so many women followed Jesus and were so attracted to his ministry. So just think about it. If you had been a woman in first century Palestine, would you have risked your life to follow just another patriarchal religious leader who told you to go home? <laughs> Author Sarah Bessie, responding to MacArthur, said this. You know who never told women to go home? Jesus. But as time went on, the church indeed caved in and adopted more secular or respectable positions regarding women, abandoning the radical freedom modeled by Jesus and advocated by Paul. Phelan states, Critics of biblical gender equality often argue that advocates for gender equality are simply giving in to the pressures of a contemporary culture. In reality, one could argue the opposite. That the traditional views of women's place in church and society are a result of giving in to the culture. If it was normal in the first century church that women were involved in advancing the kingdom and not just by helping out at home, we have to ask ourselves, is it normal for the church today? Are we living into God's design for radical biblical equality for women, for the equal bestowing of gifts as proclaimed in Joel 2? where God says our sons and daughters will prophesy. It's kind of hard to prophesy when you're being told to keep silent. Are we fully, fully living into Paul's proclamation in Galatians 3.28? There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The record of Paul commending women makes it clear he had no issues with women working alongside men in the mutual ministry of the gospel of Christ. It was, in fact, normal for the early church. Radical, yes, but it was also normal. Lesson number two, time to view the gospel as a ministry of mutuality. So as we look through all of the rest of Romans 16, just look at all these names, many of whom are women, that he greets throughout this entire chapter. And Romans 16 almost didn't make it into the canon because its inclusion was questioned because it didn't seem to have much to add to the theology of the letter. But I believe it has a lot to say 
because the question must be asked, why did Paul commend so many others? Why include greetings to so many men and women laboring in the Lord together? What can we conclude from this? Paul's ministry was not a ministry of one, but a ministry of many. A ministry of mutuality, employing both men and women equally and in partnership with one another. He commended both women and men in all leadership positions, including apostles like Junia. Think about it. How could Paul have pulled off such a widespread, widespread ministry to the Gentiles all by himself, especially if he didn't have women helping? The answer is he didn't. Junia's and Paul's ministries were ministries of mutuality, just as the ministry of Jesus's was. Does it really make a difference how we interpret Paul and his view of women? Well, it kind of makes a huge difference to half of humanity and to half the church, whose contributions have been marginalized for so long. Should this make a difference here at West Hills? I so appreciate our church, where women are affirmed in all levels of leadership. But I have to ask, is there room to grow? I believe there's always room to grow. And we shouldn't hesitate to reassess and lean into a richer and deeper understanding of Scripture and what it offers to men and women in mutual ministry. So how might we get there? Lesson number three. Time to read scripture with proper hermeneutics and with an eye toward biblical equality. Now, what do I mean by this? The first step to living out a ministry of mutuality is to agree to read scripture with sound hermeneutics starting with the core principle of use scripture to interpret scripture. Say that with me now. Use scripture to interpret scripture. This means allowing clearer, easily translated, and non-contested scripture to help interpret harder to translate scripture. We must not cherry pick a few problematic verses in Paul's letters take them out of their historical context, apply them as rules for all women for all time, all the while ignoring Scripture's overarching themes of liberation and freedom in Christ, ignoring numerous examples of women leading, and ignoring Jesus' own elevation of women. Amen. This is not only poor hermeneutics, it is contrary to God's intention for humanity. The part cannot be used to interpret the whole, but the other way around. The preponderance of evidence in Scripture affirming women must point to the rule of God's desire and intentions. Now, if you are interested in digging into these difficult passages for yourself, the covenant has lots of great resources that I can point you to. But it is untenable that a few Scriptures have been used to hold back God's design for women and men to bear his image equally and to rule over creation equally. 
So now that I've cleared that up, <laughs> it's also time to reread scripture with a lens of biblical equality, not patriarchy. I'd like to challenge us to approach scripture with a new lens of biblical equality of women, which I would argue is actually the original traditional view and lens of the gospel. <clears throat> this means rethinking examples of women in leadership in the Bible, like Micah 6.4, possibly my favorite scripture. God is speaking here to Israel and says, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. Now, if you believe this scripture clearly states that Moses and Aaron were sent by God to lead Israel, then you cannot grammatically cut Miriam off from being included as a leader as well. And if it is God bestowing shared leadership to this little trinity of siblings, it must be asked, did God make a mistake? Does he follow up, I gave you Miriam to lead you with a, but just this once? Let's reconsider Deborah, judge over Israel, or Esther. Reconsider the many women prophets like Huldah, Philip's four daughters, Mary, mother of Jesus, or Anna. In fact, reread scripture about any scripture about women speaking, prophesying, or displaying any kind of leadership and ask yourself, did God make a mistake? Does he go on to say, but just this once? These numerous, clear, and simple to translate examples of women leading must inform our understanding of the few difficult ones that appear to limit women's equality or serving in the church. When we interpret scripture with, a, with biblical equality in mind, we should do so with an understanding of just how big a deal these stories of women leading would have been to those reading them for the first time. It may not seem like a big deal to us in the 21st century, but it was a big stinking deal then. It would have been a big deal for Miriam to help lead Israel. It was a big deal for Deborah to rule as judge. It was a big deal for Jesus to speak alone with the Samaritan woman and to commend Mary for wanting to sit and learn from him along with the men. It was a big deal for Nympha to lead her house church because, remember, there was no other way to do church. There were only house churches. She was, in essence, the senior pastor of her church. And yes, it was a big deal that Junia was an apostle. And remember, these women were living in an era where religious men regularly prayed and thanked God they were not created as women. And I would say, if your Bible at home still has Junie S., it might be time to get a new Bible. <laughs> so here's your last bonus lesson. Time to rethink our understanding of power through the lens of Jesus and the triune God. Let's look at Mark 10, 42 to 45. 
And in this verse, Jesus flips the tables on the disciples' notions of authority and commands them not to lord it over the rulers, over like the rulers, but to be slaves to all <clears throat> and to give up all claims to authority. This is not a hierarchical view of power, but the very opposite. Christian pastor and theologian Tim Ritter states, Jesus explicitly taught that his disciples were to follow his example and abandon all sense of status, power, and hierarchy. This was Christianity 101 to the apostles and early church, and therefore, any interpretation of the gender passages that today seem so offensive to women must acknowledge this overarching Christian ethic. If Jesus said there weren't even supposed to be positions of status in the church, and Paul believed that every Christian was to lay down their power over others, how could the New Testament possibly teach that men are supposed to have authority and women are supposed to submit? This is our challenge, brothers and sisters, as we continue to navigate issues of power and gender equality. Will we allow the words of Jesus to upend our notions of leadership in the church? Will we work to intentionally create spaces in our church or places of work where the voices and experiences, experiences of women are equally valued and listened to? Will we be ministers of reconciliation for each other and for the world outside these walls? Now, if you think I'm simply advocating for equal power or equal rights for women, you actually would be mistaken. Don't get me wrong, equal rights are long overdue and would be nice, but that really should be our minimum. I'd like to advocate for something more for the church, something beyond equal power. I'd like to advocate for shared mutual power, something that flows out of and reflects the image of our triune God. So let's go back to Galatians 3.28. I want you to take a look at this. I'm a teacher with a whiteboard, so hang on tight. <laughs> as we become one in Jesus Christ, so as men and women get closer to Christ, what happens to this distance between the genders? There you go. The more we live out, Galatians 3.28, the closer the genders get to each other until finally we become one in Christ. Shared mutual power is not a zero-sum game. It is not about taking power away from men and giving it to women to create equality because equal power is not an end in itself. Because in reality, friends, 
Power is not man's to give. Our co-authority to rule over creation was given to us equally by God and God alone. It is not ours to give or to take away. If we view the example of Juni as just another swing of the pendulum of power, we are missing the point. I believe this picture of triune shared mutual power actually takes us beyond our notions of power and gender altogether and leads us into discipleship. A discipleship in which we become more like Christ and follow his example. Biblical equality and being disciples of Christ are not in opposition to one another. Biblical equality is not about women becoming more like men, or the opposite. It's about women and men both bearing and reflecting the image of God equally in shared mutual partnership where the unique giftedness of each gender comes together and where the two become one. And not just in marriage, but in the church as a whole, so that together we represent to the whole world what it means to be one in Christ. Biblical equality means finally living fully into Galatians 3.28, where distinctions of race, class, and gender fall away as we become one in Christ. I hope and pray we are on the cusp, church, of a spiritual renewal that finally embraces the full humanity and quality of women and their contributions, as well as the full humanity, equality, and contributions of the races. So, in closing, back to my original question. Why are we still talking about this? Isn't this settled theology? Tragically not. Complementarian theology is still alive today, and women are still being discouraged from using their gifts to help advance God's kingdom. But just because we hire women at West Hills doesn't mean we can stop addressing equality for women in general. Because, friends, it's not just about us. It is still important to discuss because it is about the integrity of the gospel itself. Gender equality is not an add-on, but an integral part of the gospel. With poll after poll indicating millennials are rejecting church, it makes me wonder if we have been hindering the spirit of God and the growth of his kingdom by being restrictive of, of women who make up half the church. Are we creating the very barriers that Christ came to tear down and in the process losing the next generation of believers? Is the gospel we are preaching really good news for everyone? And if the gospel is at stake, and if the ministry of Jesus Christ is a ministry of, recon of mutuality and reconciliation, then it is not enough just to be allies for women in ministry. We, women and men alike, need to be advocates for women's equality and for the reconciliation of the genders in and outside of church. 
We need to reclaim women's contributions to the church, both historically and currently. Women and men partnering together need to advocate for the full equality of women in our homes, churches, and around the world. Consider for a moment how the world might be different today if women had been deemed fully equal all this time. How might issues of poverty, economics, and health care be different? How might recognizing the full humanity of women help combat the evils of abuse and human trafficking? I pray and I believe that West Hills could be part of a spiritual renewal in Portland, setting an example of affirming women and men working in partnership sharing the gospel in new and fresh ways to those hungry to hear the good news of a God who created women and men equally in his image, who created them to rule together over his creation and to work together to proclaim the gospel of liberation from sin and freedom in Jesus Christ. Al Tazone, the Covenant's executive minister of Serve Globally, says, The whole church needs to discover the compelling image of being God's reconciled and reconciling people, modeling for a fractured world the power of God to mend, heal, and make whole even the most intense of enmities. For what does it mean to be the whole church engaged in God's whole mission if it it does not include the goal of reconciliation between men and women, young and old, rich and poor, and black, white, and brown in a broken world. Brothers and sisters, we should not be afraid to reconsider our assumptions in light of new evidence. If we cling to error or flawed thinking, we diminish the gospel and deprive ourselves of a richer understanding of the kingdom of God and the ministry of reconciliation in Jesus Christ. The word of God can handle our questions. God will honor our seeking a deeper understanding of his truth. Let the story of Junia and other women in scripture draw us ever closer to God and ever closer to grasping God's radical love and his mutual ministry of reconciliation. Amen.